Thank you for joining me here at the Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. This episode is going to be really fun. But first, let's take a shout out to our sponsor, Collins Aerospace. They're working side by side with their customers and partners to dream, design, and deliver solutions that redefine the future of our industry. Check them out today at CollinsAerospace.com. Now, coming up next in this episode of The Real Rescue, this guy is coming back. He's already told us one story that he was involved with, him and his partner, early, early in the podcast. You'll have to go find it, check it out. He also came back to help me with a memorial episode and do a debrief about what had happened. But now, this time, this is his episode. He comes in with an amazing story, plus a couple back-end stories of while he was flying and what he does with SR3 Rescue Concepts. So please welcome our next guest back again, Mr. Dave Callen. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. Today, I've got a fellow brother of mine, uh, a like instructor brother, company brother, webinar brother, been on the podcast already, brother. Dude, actually, shit, Dave, we've done a lot together. It's it's kind of ridiculous. It's awesome. Oh, hold on, hold on, though. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dave Callen. What's up, Dave? How are you, brother? What's up, man? I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, it's an honor to be on here with you again. And, uh, dude, this is all, awesome. It's of all the things you just said. <laughs> I'm so excited. So, here's, here's the cool part about this is like, uh, let me give you a, a little bit of background for everybody. So, you are, Las Vegas police, you're all right, retired, retired, uh, but you're a pilot there or was a pilot there. Then you uh, made and created SR3 Rescue Concepts. So you own your own company, which is a training company. Thank you for uh, helping me come train with you, by the way, throw that out there. And then in addition to that, you're also a CFI, a certified flight instructor. So you also do flight instruction outside. Well, I guess not outside of SR3, but you, you do like it's, you have a whole bunch of stuff that you do. It's freaking awesome. <laughs> Just trying to stay busy. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I thought when you retired, you're supposed to like take it easy. <laughs> you know, that is what they say. Um, but it seems like a lot of the folks that I worked with, they go one of two directions when they retire. They either completely retire and they, you know, they just live their best life or there's, the folks that do what I do, which is they, I don't know, they seem to be working way more than, you know, you're supposed to when you're retired. But, you know, I'm not one of those people that can just sit down. I got to stay busy. So I'm, I'm cool yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I'm cool with it, too, because it, it helps me, too. I'm just going to throw that out there. Like, bonus for me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, so uh, I got to shout out you and John Thayer. We're on episode five. Like, as a matter of fact, for everybody that doesn't know this, I specifically remember you, me, and Rob Monday sitting in a training class down in uh, Alabama off the top of my head. I think it was up there. Yeah. And we're in the house and I walked out and I'm like, guys, I'm going to start a podcast. And your exact words were like, fuck yeah, do it. <laughs> I was like, that's funny. That's what my wife said. Not quite that dramatic, but yes. 
but you do everything at like 105, 106%. So there was no doubt in my mind that it was going to be successful. And it's honestly, man, it's awesome to see what it's turned into and how many episodes you're up to, the number of followers. You know, we run into people all the time that uh, when we're just out doing our thing that, that can mention your name, mention the podcast. You know, we always tell them, hey, if, you, if you've never listened to it or, hey, we're always trying to poach people to get on there for them, but it's cool. And then, you know, recently all the the um, the, the new relationships with Vertical and all that stuff, man, like absolutely love Mike Reno and that company. So, yeah, it's just good people working with good people. So, yeah, super proud of you, kid. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Like a lot. Um yeah, it's been fun. But you and John, so you and John, like you guys were some of my first interviewed guys. And and at the time, I was only asking for like one story. So the two of you came on to tell an epic story coming into a canyon of a kid that fell some ridiculous amount. And then when you get there, there's actually two victims because the friend fell. I'm not going to tell anymore because everybody has to go listen to it. Episode five was legit. Don't worry about the audio and the visual and all that jazz. I was a newbie, okay? No, we've, we've upgraded since then, Dave. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit. And it's funny because uh, within the SR3 community, um, there's kind of a big thing that is really spearheaded by Steph Mayer, who was also True. one of the people on your podcast. And, you know, Steph started this tradition where, you know, depending on what number of episode you were on the Real Rescue podcast, uh, particularly among the SR3 instructors, that the lower number you are, anybody that's a higher number than you automatically has to buy you a beer upon demand. You know, it's similar to a challenge coin. Um, and thankfully for me, I have all those dudes beat. So I always laugh when he starts, you know, dropping that whenever we're out and about. So I'm like, whatever. Well, you guys go buy each other beer and bring me a beer too. <laughs> but yeah. I love it. John and I come on there and we're helping you get started in the beginning, which was super cool. Yeah. Well, like I said, I mean, I appreciate it because it was uh, it was an epic story and I loved having you guys on to, to hear it. I mean, you know, in particular, the, the stuff that, that you guys were doing in Las Vegas and what Vegas Metro does to go out in high mountain desert, desert temperatures. So you're up at 100 and plus 10 degrees and well, it's like 48, 49 degrees Celsius, stupid hot, high in the mountains. It's just crazy stuff out there. So it was a, it was a fun story, but that's why you're back here because I'm, and I've only been bugging you for like a year to come back to hear the rest of your stuff. So it's only about time. <laughs> well, here I am. So it's all good. It is. It's all good. It's all good. And you know, the other thing about this is uh, the fact that you always tell me, you really like it when you have pilots come on. So now you have no excuse but to listen to this one, even though it's you, because you're a pilot. <laughs> I'm not going to listen to it, but <laughs> I, I hate listening to myself. But uh, yeah, selfishly, <laughs> being a pilot, um, I always enjoy whenever you have pilots on here because I am all about learning and hearing experiences and stories from everybody. You know, I love hearing the experiences and the stories and, um, you know, anything that I can take something away from, from anybody that's on the podcast. But obviously, I, you know, I just love to hear pilots telling stories, especially when things have gone wrong or they've learned lessons or, you know, they've got something that I feel like, OK, man, I wish I would have known that a long time ago. That would have made my life less exciting. But, yeah, I'm a big fan of that, obviously, the pilot stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm excited because you're going to drop some knowledge to us today, uh, along with your stories. So this is, this is going to be a bonus. Um, but before we get into that, Dave, do me a favor. Bring everybody up to speed. A little bit of background about you. What, uh, where are you from? What brought you into the police department and bringing you a pilot? Yeah, so 
just briefly, um, I was born in California, but we moved to Vegas when I was really young, um, basically like four. And uh, so I, I was basically considered born and raised in Vegas. So I uh, grew up there. Uh, parents divorced when I was young, but, um, and my dad actually moved back to California not long after we moved to Vegas, but he had been recently retired LA County Sheriff's deputy and he was in the Arab unit. So, um, basically, you know, now you look at those guys and that's a massive unit. Uh, LA County has this, you know, it's a huge agency with a huge air unit, but, uh, he retired out of there as a rescue pilot. So he flew patrol and did all those things and was a patrol officer first, um, and then my mom worked as a dispatcher for LA County and then eventually hired on the Las Vegas Metro as a call taker dispatcher in Vegas. Um, so I just always wanted to be involved in law enforcement. And I was really interested in aviation growing up as a kid anyway, just because of the influence of my dad. So long term, I just knew I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be a cop. And uh, I did one tour in the Navy right out of high school, got out, came back to Vegas, was in naval aviation just as an enlisted person. Um, and yeah, when I got back to Vegas, I uh, just needed a job right away, went to work for Southwest Airlines for a stint um, just to kind of pay the bills, but then tested and got hired with Las Vegas Metro Police right at the beginning of 2000. And um, I did seven years in patrol and then tested for the air unit and got pulled up there. Long story short, I did about nine years as a- Dave, don't do that to me. Don't, don't make a long story short. This is, is, you can stand for me, man. Oh no, everybody's heard this stuff, but um, yeah, I was fortunate. Yeah, you have, you know. I know, but nobody else has, so. (laughs) Well, I was fortunate enough to to go to the air unit as a a pilot. And um, the way Vegas Metro does it, the primary mission is patrol. And uh, they have dual train people. So you go up there and you have to make it through tactical flight officer training first. So um, made it through the TFO training and then got assigned my primary flight instructor, went through flight training, got my private and commercial rotorcraft and started flying patrol. But during that time there, um, you know, there was guys that were really, really high time experienced guys in the unit that had been in the unit for a long time that were rescue pilots and were CFIs and goggle instructors. And they did long line stuff and fast rope stuff with SWAT. And they just did all the stuff that was to me, you know, just incredible and, and required a lot of skill and maturity, good decision-making just, you know, like literally the, the cream of the crop. So um, between seeing that and then the influence from my dad, that was the goal that I had set was I said, man, I'm going to try to do everything I can up here, anything that they allow me to do like, but I want to, eventually I want to be a rescue pilot someday. So, um, at that point, you know, I was just building time, but when I became eligible for these different things and I, you know, tried to show interest and motivation then I was getting selected to do stuff. So they, you know, eventually picked me to be a CFI, um, and then kind of put me in the, well, we'll probably be able to, you know, we'll consider making this dude a rescue pilot program thing. Um, but yeah, I just, I kept the progression there. So, you know, I, they taught me how to long line. Um, I became an NVG instructor and then uh, just was getting all of the sign offs in the unit. And then in Vegas, you had to have a minimum of 2000 hours of pilot and command time in the unit as a helicopter pilot to be considered to be a rescue pilot. And you had to be a, to been a CFI. So um, you know, they fortunately selected me to go through the program and the way it was structured back then, because we had MD 500s and uh, a couple of Hueys. So 
you basically would go through the 500 training program first uh, day and then night, and then you would do the Huey program, which was hoist, and then they would uh, do the fast rope instruction. So yeah, I went through that. And a lot of the rescues in Vegas involved doing one skids and towins in the 500 in Red Rock because it's really tight and confined um, in those locations. And there was a lot of spots where the Huey you just literally you couldn't even fly it into some of the canyons because it was just so big uh, to hoist. So um, yeah, I went through that and then I uh, got spun up, uh, went through the hoist training, did that. And then, you know, I just basically got trained to do everything. So I got to roll through all that stuff and work in the unit as an officer. Uh, for about nine years. And then I decided I wanted to advance my career and test for sergeant. And everybody thought I was nuts when I told them I was going to do that. Um, because if you get promoted, they generally do not leave you in a specialized unit. You go back to patrol to get patrol experience as a leader and as a supervisor of patrol officers. Because at the end of the day, like everybody's a police officer, that's why, you know, hopefully you hired on is to be a cop first. So and I agreed with that 100%. Like, I understood the value in it. So uh, I tested the first time and didn't make it, actually. I, I was shy, I think. Um, so the first test part of the process is is a written exam, and it's really, really challenging to pass. Um, and you study for months. And so I, I took the written. I think I actually took it with Thayer um, <laughs> at the time. Oh, and, nice. Yeah, I think, uh, I think Thayer... I can't remember if Thayer passed it or if he fell short by like one point and I was like two points. I can't even remember, but, but yeah, I didn't pass the written. And I just remember I was pissed cause I studied so hard, but it just motivated me. So um, we ended up having an, an accident at work and I was off for a period of time uh, cause I got hurt. And then I studied that whole time and then just grounded out, promoted, went back to patrol and um, I left the area in it and I was gone for about 13 months and uh, at the time, there was two sergeant positions and, you know, they they would never even consider being able to bring me back unless there was a vacancy. And I thought, well, I'm done, you know, I'll just move on and and kind of, you know, do some other stuff on the department. But I obviously would have loved to have gone back. And uh, one of the sergeants at the time that was up there decided that he had an opportunity to go be the basically the vice president of the supervisors union. So he took that spot and then freed up a spot in the area unit. And so I was able to test and come back. And then I finished my career out there until I retired as a sergeant. So I was doing the same thing, got to fly and, um, you know, flew quite a bit. The sergeants up there fly and contribute uh, just as much as the officers do. So, yeah, that was essentially my career until I retired in 2020. Dang, man, what a good career. Solid. Plus your little stint in the Navy. So I'd well throw that in there. Just this <laughs> freaking squid. Go ahead. Call it puddle jumper. Say it. Say it. I dare you to. Oh, man. You know what? I was one of those guys that would talk smack about the other branches. I don't know, man. I got a lot of respect for anybody that serves in the military and in the branch. Me um, too. I know you do. But that's why we're allowed to talk smack. I'm just going to throw I it know. out there. I got you. Got you. <laughs> you know what? The only reason I can talk smack to you is because I know if we were to roll, I would get my ass handed to me. So oh, I, I like that. The little head nod right there. Uh-huh. I might have back problems these days, but I don't yeah, know. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, soft these hey, days. Um, you mentioned two things that, that I want to just get a little bit of clarification on. You had mentioned uh, doing the MD500, you guys would do a lot of toe-ins and one-skids, like one-skid landing rescues. Now, I know what that is, but for everybody that doesn't know what that is, walk us through, what is a, what is a toe-in? 
So a toe-in was something that we would do occasionally. We would only do it when we absolutely had to. And, and going back actually to that rescue that John and I spoke to you about on episode five, that was an example of when it was a necessity just to insert the guys. But basically, um, you fly in in a helicopter like the 500, you have one or two rescuers in the back. And um, ideally, you want to put, well, ideally, you can land with two skids on the ground. But, you know, in these situations, it's generally not possible. So ideally, you try to put an entire skid on the left side, the same side the pilot's on, in this case, in the 500. You balance it, and the guys can climb in and out very slowly to where it doesn't disturb the aircraft anymore, um, you know, than it, than it needs to. But with a tow-in, the terrain may drop off. And the, just because of the clearances of the rotor disc and the tail, you have to go in there. And literally, that's all you can put on is the toe of the skid. So when we did tow-ins, we would only do it for insertions. We wouldn't do it for extractions, um, with the exception of when we had to extract the kids um, on that episode, because there's no other way to do it. But for our insertions, what we would do is come in, and put ideally the left toe on some terrain. And then generally it would kind of, you know, drop off. And that's why you're doing the toe in. But our guys would climb out onto the skid. And then very slowly, there's some grab handles. They would walk forward along the skid, pass me with the doors off, and then step off that way. They could also climb on that way. So we could do extractions with our rescuers that way. But we would obviously never expect a civilian or a citizen to be able to do that. That's ridiculously dangerous. But you know, if we had to get our guys in and out, we could do it that way. But ideally, it would be with a more traditional one skid. And that was the majority of how we did it. And we would short haul in the 500 also, but only when it was necessary. Nice. Well, thank you for that. The other thing I want to I want to point out real quick is that uh, you tested for sergeant uh, your first time and didn't make it, but it didn't stop you. You kept going, and I, I like that too, man. I just I want to shout out to you on that one because you didn't quit. You just kept pushing forward. You you were gonna pass. I'm sorry you were doing it when you were injured, but you know what? Good job. <laughs> hey, man. That you know, yeah, failure. I've always felt failure is honestly, it's necessary. It's, it goes hand in hand with success. Right. So, you know, the best thing you can do in those situations is let it motivate you. So that's what I did. Thankfully yeah. I took right. I took the right path and just ground it out even harder. I was just pissed, especially, you know, to work for months studying and to come up like two points short. I think I, the cutoff was like 93%. I think I had a 91 that year and I was just I couldn't believe it. I was beside myself. Because if you think about it, I don't want to say you wasted, you know, the three months or whatever you did of studying. But I mean, literally, better luck next time. You're done. Yeah. You know? so I just think of all the hours and hours and hours I was studying. I could have been hanging out with my family instead. So, yeah, I was pissed. But uh, I got it done the second time around. Right on. Right on. All right, man. So now, next question. Uh, do you remember your very first rescue? Oh, I do. Clearly. It was very anti awesome. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know what? That's okay. That's okay. What happened? So, you know, gone through this whole training process and, you know, I'm so excited. And it's funny because talking to other guys in the unit that were rescue pilots, they had similar stories. Um, one of the guys that I worked with for years that I have a ton of respect for, a guy named Steve Hammock, um, that was up there and poured a lot of stuff into me. I mean, all the guys up there did, there were so many guys that poured into me and, and taught me stuff that literally kept me alive. But, um, Steve had kind of finished my training and I remember him telling me he had the same experience where you go through this and then you're just like cocked and locked and ready to go. And then you're sitting around for just days and you're like, we just, I need to get one. I need to get one. I need to get one. And it's like, all of a sudden it was feast and now it's famine. 
and just nobody's calling to get rescued. It's that was kind of my experience. It's almost like a curse for a new rescue pilot. But finally, we get a call, and it was somebody out in Red Rock. Um, there's a, a hike up there to a peak called Turtlehead, and it was like a frequent flyer thing, man. The guys actually later on went out there with BLM and put signs up to keep people on the trail because so many people would come down the backside of this thing the wrong way and they'd get stuck and lost. So it was a, a turtle head rescue. And I jumped in there with a good friend of mine, Dave Gifford, who was the other Sergeant. And then one of the star guys in the back and, you know, fly fire up. We do the briefing. We're flying out there and I'm just going through everything in my head. You know, it's like, this is not a technical rescue either. You know, <laughs> this is going to be like the least technical rescue that we would do, but still I'm just going through it all in my head. And I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Like I can land here. I can land there. I could, you know, like just think in the process and we're just about to arrive. We're getting in the Red Rock area and they call on the, the radio. The guys on the ground are like, yeah, we located them. We're just going to hike up and grab them. We're going to walk them out. You guys can cancel and go back to the hangar. I was like, oh my God, you gotta be shitting me. Come on, man. Like, you sure you don't? Like, literally, I told Gifford, hey, ask him, man. Are they sure they don't want us just to fly in there and grab this dude real quick? Now nah, we're good, man. We're just gonna hype him out. So I was like, oh, God. All right. Flew oh, back. Oh, man. Yeah. And then, like, a day or two later, we get another call for just a search, like, out in the Valley of Fire. Went out there, did a search, like, no. I can't even remember what happened. It was like the victim was already gone or something. <laughs> so then that the next one blame. And then the, the third one where I actually could say I picked up a human being and, you know, saved them, quote unquote, uh, was with John Clare, a guy out near the Valley Fire, got stuck um, and had been out there for a long time in his truck on just on some dirt road in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and he ends up walking away from the truck and he's dehydrated. So he calls. We flew out there, found the truck, flew a little bit, found him, two skid landing, loaded him and flew him out. And I was like, wow, okay. I'm officially <laughs> yeah, the first was pretty lame. Um, but that didn't last long. They uh they immediately started getting much more exciting uh, from there. So yeah. Okay. I'll... All right. Well, you you've got me intrigued. So what was your first exciting one? Oh man, so that's funny. I would have to actually go through my logbook and, and kind of like in chronological order look, cause you know, I always wrote them down. I always put like the, we call it an event number, but an incident number. And I would just put, you know, who I was with and then, you know, who I pulled out of, I wouldn't put their names, just, you know, one male adult, one female adult, but I'd have to go and look and see. Um, I would, I don't know what the first one that was exciting was. Um, all right. All right. It was definitely, <laughs> there was definitely a lot because you know, out there, like you said, it's people don't realize, um, but how high the altitudes are and the temperatures in the summertime are obviously really extreme, uh, but it's just windy. It's just so windy the majority of the time, especially in the springtime out there. So it's very challenging for, um, you know, the guys just even flying patrol where they're just getting blasted with winds. It sucks, but you know, you go up in the mountains at high altitudes and you're flying around in some of those canyons. Um, you really have to be switched on with you know, your ability to not lose control of the thing, to not just fly into a situation without kind of, you know, figuring it out or dipping your toe in the water, if you will, first. Um, and and your power management has to be spot on at those altitudes. Because, you know, the peak of Mount Charleston is 11,900 feet. So, you know, when you go to Mount Charleston, you're not doing anything. Usually in the like 9, 10, 11 range is kind of like where we would go up there and hoist. And those are high altitudes. And, you know, then you throw in the mix of wind and temperature. And I mean, you really, really have to to be, um, you know, on it and, you know, flying cautiously, I should say. 
Um, you're, but, you're flying a Huey up at like 10,000 feet to hoist? Yeah. And so that was Damn, one thing, man. Damn. That was one thing that I will always, always, always be thankful for. That kind of forwards my career. And then instructing for SR3, you know, doing hoist instruction specifically, is that understanding, um, you know, how to have very, very good power management and understanding how to have very good aircraft control and always set yourself up into situations where you can slowly get into a situation and you can rapidly get out of it. And, you know, it, it's very common, especially in those Hueys at those altitudes to go right up to the edge of the aircraft's performance. Like, and sometimes we'll talk about this. I know one of the ones that we were going to talk about, um, it could be very challenging for us as pilots because you would have a very small margin of controllability and you would have to kind of decide like, am I willing to accept a small margin? Because if it wasn't quite enough, you could literally, what would normally would happen to us is we would run out of tail rotor authority. And then the Huey, you know, oh. you would run out of left pedal. Literally the left pedal hits the stop and all of a sudden you're like, shit, that's it. And if you don't take immediate action, the thing's going to start spinning on you. And, um, you know, that was our, that was the thing that just all the time we were having to deal with up there at those altitudes. It's a great helicopter. We had a lot of upgrades done to those Hueys um, performance-wise. Bigger engines, um, the fast fin, the straight kits to try to get more tail rotor authority, and it helped. But you know, at the end of the day, that really made me um, a better pilot. All the guys better pilots. And you know, I've been able to apply that in teaching you know, everywhere we go with SR3. Because you think about it, if you kind of go from – um, you know, like the middle of, of the country east, there's really no high altitude. So, you know, a lot of the, the folks that are doing any type of that flying, um, you know, it's still challenging. It's, don't don't get me wrong, but, you know, they may never experience those altitudes. So you just don't have to you don't necessarily run into those limitations like you would if you were out west. Yeah. Dang, man. Dang. Dude, that's that's uh, I. Yeah. I knew you guys were doing it in the 145 because you guys got the 145 up there now or had or have have Vegas. Sorry, Vegas Metro specifically has the 145 now. Um, and I know you're flying that, which has a little more power. It's a little more versatile up in the, the higher altitudes and stuff, but still the same. Gnarly. Yeah, no, well, I'll tell you that thing. Shit. When we got that helicopter, it was night and day. And the performance of that H145 uh, it's a D2 version. Um, you know, now Airbus is at the D3 version, which is five bladed. And um, it, it's, you know, basically the same helicopter with some upgrades, if you want to look at it like that. But that D2 version was massively upgraded over the C2 version, which is, you know, kind of the Lakota is what people generally refer to it as. But, you know, they they just completely overhauled. It's not even the same helicopter. But that that H145 at those altitudes does phenomenally amazing um power wise and control wise also i mean it was it was just so much nicer the last few years i was there to take that thing up there you know because i never worried about running on a left pedal in the 145 um i still flew it the same though and that was the thing is you know because of my days in the huey i still flew the 145 like it was the huey and even up there i mean when you go up really really high and the winds are nasty um there's times where i've had to to land and, and kick out SAR guys because we didn't have the power just mainly, you know, because of downdrafts and things like that, even in the 145. But yeah. for me, at least it had the controllability 
And that was always the biggest thing, you know, power management is huge, but controllability is just, I mean, that'll, that'll give you the PTSDs, man. When you run out of left pedal and there's somebody on the, on the hook and they're like, either you just picked them or, I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. So, but yeah, I mean, hats off to Airbus. That's a phenomenal helicopter. Right on. I like it. All right, my friend, dude, I'm, I'm ready for a story. I'm ready for a story. We're going to divert real quick to thank our sponsors. Collins Aerospace Goodrich. Whether your mission is saving lives or servicing high-value assets, Collins Aerospace's Goodrich Toists stay ready to assist. Features such as single-point payout reduce the potential for hoist-induced load swings, enhancing overall safety. <laughs> All right, so, yeah, we, we kind of chatted uh, when you had asked me about coming back on and um, you know, about another, just another good, interesting rescue story. And this one came to mind because again, I'm, I'm really all about, you know, trying to get something out of whenever I listen to these podcasts or, you know, similar podcasts. So um, it's funny because in this case, it wasn't, you know, any hellacious injuries or anything like that, but like kind of the progression of the rescue and some of the things that happened were just like, Holy shit, you know, prefer not to do that again. Um, but Essentially for this one, it was a afternoon rescue um, up at Mount Charleston. There was a single uh, female, adult female hiker. Um, I want to say she's probably like in her 50s, but she had hiked the North Loop Trail up at Mount Charleston and headed towards a peak called Mummy Mountain. And I think the peak of that is like maybe it's over 11,000. It's like 11.4 or something like that. It's high. So she called in because she had been up there, you know, it takes hours to get up to those altitudes from, you know, like any of those parking lots. So she'd been hiking all day. So she ends up getting off trail and she's lost. She gets turned around and um, it's late afternoon. So she finally realizes, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm smoked. I think she was out of water. She was probably mildly dehydrated. So she calls in and this was before the 145. we had the Hueys and um, so we had coordinates on her take off. And I think I had, um, myself, uh, co-pilot was Dave Brooks, who is actually still in the unit today. He's a sergeant, phenomenal guy. Um, love right. Dave Brooks. So he was, you know, Brooksy. So he was with me as my co-pilot in Huey. And then I, I had, um, I think Thayer was with me. Thayer's always with me when shit goes sideways. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> and then I had, um, two other star guys too. And I can't remember who they were, but, um, basically, so we fly up there with a crew of five. That was our standard compliment in Huey. And, you know, we're full of gas. So we fly up there and the winds aren't really bad. Um, they were fairly, fairly light. And uh, we find her and she's, I don't know, she was probably, she was just over 11,000 feet in elevation, like maybe 11.2 or something like that. So we kind of find her on this downhill side of, of the peak and we're kind of doing some orbits. And it was in this kind of a, not really, not like a tight, but just kind of like a bowl type section. Um, so there was really kind of only two ways to go in there. So um, made a couple of approaches. And, you know, again, for me, flying at those altitudes, you know, for anybody that hasn't, like, you really have to, you have to think about a few things, like making your approaches flat, um, trying to slow down gradually, approaching the terrain on an angle if possible, so that you're not flying directly at, you know, like rising terrain so that you don't have to make an aggressive 90 degree plus turn to get away from it so you know those are all things that we did as a standard so 
made a couple of approaches on an angle flat, you know, just decelerating slowly, trying to, when I still was far away from the terrain, get the power set to where I knew, you know, I would, I was below translational. So the majority of the power and the pedal were in there uh, before I was really committed and close to the terrain to where, you know, if anything happens and usually again, it's, you're running out of left pedal, you just lower a little collective, push forward and you're like, Nope, and you go around. So that was really common, that kind of testing out period. And it always sucked because, you know, you take off in the Huey and you're full of gas. Like we had two hours of gas on board and we always needed it. So, um, you know, you would just have to either burn the gas or you would have to land and kick out the fattest SAR guy, which there's all, I always laugh when we're teaching <laughs> SR three place classes when we talk about these things. You know, it sucks because there's always the current, you know, fattest SAR guy. And I say fat, not, you know, like out of He's shape. He's usually jacked. It's <laughs> It's the well, the big yeah yeah man, my biceps are the size of my freaking quads what <laughs> yeah it's it's the heaviest sar you know guy and I say guy I mean it it, it could be a woman too but generally you know it's it's not it's generally uh, just, no most it, of the women that I know that are in sar don't weigh as much as the most heaviest sar guy I'm just gonna yeah that all of the sar women that I have ever had the pleasure to work with are in phenomenal shape and they can usually whip anyone's ass in a CrossFit match when it comes down yep. to it um so but they're I weight mean, to uh to ratio. It's not the same. It's always a, a, no, a it's, bigger guy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's always the big dude, right? And so right. we make a couple of approaches and we're just, you know, I'm getting in there and I'm just about stopped and I'm just, I'm hit, I'm hitting, you know, my left pedal limitation. So I would go around. I tried a few times and I'm like, it's not going to work. So that's all we can do at that point is offload some weight. So um said, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to land down at this lower lodge area where we would always land and, and usually offload victims and pick up people in gear. And that's at the lowest um, portion of that beginning of this, you know, giant area that is Mount Charleston. And that's at about 7,000 feet MSL. So that was always the plan. So I said, Hey guys, I'm just going to, I'm going to fly down there and descend. I'm going to land and kick out, you know, so-and-so. So one of the guys actually said, Hey, um, what do you think about going to the youth camp, the Spring Mountain Youth Camp? It's it's closer, and it's on it's on a peak, kind of down descending, um, kind of down in the direction of where this lower lodge was. Um, but it was higher, and it was up on a peak. But we're up at like eleven two, and the youth camp's at like eighty four hundred. So I was like, yeah, actually, that okay, yeah, like we could probably do that because there's, it's basically like a. Um, it's like a, a youth detention facility that's up there on this peak. And um, there's a big football field with, you know, a road that goes up there. And it's a legit full-size football field with light poles and everything. And so they're like, hey, you know, we could have the resident officer who he's already, he's already listening on the radio. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm really close. So I can just go up there. I can open the gate. And, you know, you guys can use this as your staging area. And it's like half the distance. So I was like, yeah, actually, that's fine. Like, we can go. We can go with Grant up there. And stuff. So... We, we descend down there and, you know, kind of recon the area and looking at it. And it's, it's on this it legit is on a peak and the terrain it's on kind of a, not like a full ridge line Cause there's a facility up there, but it, you know, it kind of drops off on, on three sides, if you will. Um, so the winds are pretty light, really nothing, you know, to write home about. So I set up for this approach and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm coming in nice and slow and smooth. I get the power locked in. And the, the angle that I picked, it just wasn't good. Like we were kind of like, I could tell as soon as I started to drop out of translational, the power comes in. I'm like, yeah, I don't like that. It's just, 
it doesn't like face in this direction. So we go around and Brooks is like, yeah, okay, cool. I kind of felt that too. So I'm like, Hey, I'm going to come around and I'm going to come at it from this angle. And this will be good. Cause you know, we'll be able to peel away. We're kind of on a 45, like I'm doing all the math. Cause I'm still like, I'm not going to get bit up here. Like this it's, we're still high. I mean, 8,400 feet is still high and we're heavy. So um, the resident officer gets up there, he opens the gate and we're just, just decided, Hey, we're going to go right for the 50 yard line. It's the most open area up here. We're going to have to come between two of the stadium light posts. Um, but we're going to be slow. And like, once we get to that point and we're committed, like, you know, we'll be good. And I'll just assemble go right to the 50 yard line, set it down nice and slow. So we set up for this different direction approach and it's only maybe 45 degrees off, but I could tell like, this is where the wind's coming from. We're good. So as soon as we start the approach, everything feels great, like smooth, no issues at all. I, I remember telling Dave, I was like, this is good. This feels really good. And he's like, yeah, it feels good. So we're just chugging along nice and slow. Power gets set, a decent amount of pedal in there. Um, but again, like that's a critical thing is, you know, trying to get slow as early as you can to where most of that power and pedal required is in there. So, you know, yeah. the the thing that people don't realize is that if like you're descending like a steep approach in there, your power setting is really low. And then if you go to, you know, now once you get close to the bottom and you're close to the ground and you go to slow down and you pull in all this collective, well, all this left pedal comes in. And if you don't know how much it's going to take, you could literally like pull, hit the stop. And now you're, you're close to the ground and you're screwed. Right. So that was always the mentality. So did everything textbook, everything's good. And we're close. There's, you know, but there's a good, good enough margin of left pedal on this approach that I felt like it's fine and it's totally smooth too. So everything's good. And just as we're coming just short final. And I kind of remember thinking in my mind, like, okay, I'm going to commit to this landing. We just kind of descend between those light poles and, you know, they're spread out, but they're tall. Yeah. We just got below the level of them. And all of a sudden the wind changed and the nose started to go right. And I put in left pedal, bang, hits the stop and the nose keeps going. And I remember it's the only time in my whole career where I ever said shit. Like I literally said shit. And it's so cliche and hilarious because, like, you know, that's you, that's the last thing those guys want to hear, right? But it, yeah. it caught me hard. So now, like, I'm on the stop, and I have two choices really quick. It's like, okay, lower some collective, try to stop this thing, and commit to the landing. And I wasn't sure, you know, that by lowering that collective, and then once we got close to the ground, pulling again, if the nose was going to – like, if we were rotating at all, there was a good chance, you know, we would touch down, but roll over. <laughs> and, oh, you know, that's how I feel. So, you know, I just really quickly, I remember doing the math and I'm like, shit, we're still moving forward. Obviously, um, the more I slow down, the worse this problem's going to get, even though, you know, we're probably doing 10 knots ground speed, maybe something like that. But I just knew like, this is going to be, this is going to be bad. You know, I'm going to have to get really lucky to actually get this thing to not rotate when I set it down and then it's okay. I just, just kick everybody out and then, you know, probably be able to take off. But, uh, I just decided I'm going around. So I, I, I had to kind of lock the collective where it was because I don't want to pull. I mean, even one more pound of torque, it's going to get worse. Right. So, um, I push forward and I'm just trying to milk the collective, you know, and we're still kind of descending because it's like, all right, I, I don't want to climb any more than I have to, because the more I pull, the worse the shit's going to get. 
So I just drive this thing forward between the next two satellite poles, which are on the other side of the 50 yard line, the other side of the stadium. And, you know, the nose is like probably, I don't know, 30 degrees now. And it's, this thing is just shaking and it's pissed, you know, and I'm just every like ounce of trying not to pull any more than we had to to clear. So it's just like shaking sideways and it wants to snap and go to the right. And we barely clear the next set of light poles and then it, you know, it drops off like several thousand feet immediately. And so it just lower the collective push forward. And then as soon as it started, like we're flying and everything's normal again. And I remember Brooks was like, what the fuck was that? And I was like, dude, I don't know. Like everything was good. Even the guys in the back, their whole night, oh, that ain't normal. Um, but I mean, you know, we've been this close on a nice day, just, balling that thing up on the side of the mountain, just trying to land and kick somebody out. We hadn't even done the rescue yet, you know? And then there's so many things that come into mind too, you know, is we always talk in some of our SR3 classes, like, especially if you're the only agency or you're a small agency that's doing SAR, if you have an accident, who rescues the rescuers? And even then, like a huge problem now, all of a sudden, so say we would have balled that thing up there, even with minor injuries. Well, now we got to spin up a whole nother crew. There's two major problems. We've got a crash helicopter with five dudes up on the top of a mountain at 8,400 feet. And we still have a female victim up there and the sun's, you know, starting to get low. So, you know, for me, it like, it's funny now, you know, and like, we all laughed about it. Even, you know, I was talking to Dave Brooks not long ago when we went out to Vegas and we were talking about it. He's laughing. He's like, Oh yeah, I remember that. You know, I was like, dude, that, that put a big pile of shit in my pants when that happened. You know? <laughs> and then on top of it, you know, like you just had the crap scared out of you. Well, guess what? Like you're not even, you barely even started this mission. Like you still need to go up there and get that lady. So like put that in the back of your mind. Don't think about it anymore. Um, so we go around and right away, I'm like, we are going to the lodge down to 7,000 where there's no peak and I can make a much simpler approach, you know, and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. So we go down there, land, we kick out our, our fattest star guy, we climb back up there to 11.2 where this lady is. And so now, you know, I got to, I got to insert one of our rescuers up there to where she is. So I go up there and I've got Chris LeBlanc, who is the SAR sergeant at the time. And he was the lightest guy out of all of them. Guy's a total stud, like just absolutely crushes CrossFit um, in phenomenal shape. So we fly up there. And, you know, now in the back of my head, I'm like, great. Like, <laughs> I just ran out of left pedal at 8.4. Now I got to go to 11.2 and do this shit again, you know. So, but we've kicked off a guy. We burned some gas. Um, so we fly up there. And I tried a few times where she was to try to insert Chris to where, you know, he was basically right where she was. And we just couldn't do it the way, you know, the winds are, again, they're light, but it's funny because when we talk about flying in the wind, a lot of times pilots will get stressed out when it's windy because they're like, well, that sucks. Like, you know, flying in the wind's uncomfortable, but unless you're in terrain that makes the wind very unpredictable as far as the directions it's coming from and you get, you know, big up downs and updrafts and downdrafts, um, I prefer flying in the wind if it's consistent because you know where it's coming from. When it's light and variable, you get situations like what happened to us trying to land on that football field. And you know what? More than likely, if we would have waited 10 minutes and tried it again, it probably would have been fine. But it was just that one moment in time where the wind was very light and it was coming from one direction at, you know, maybe five knots. And we were right at the edge of our limitations. And then it just, you know, probably started coming up the face of the mountain, coming over the top. And it changed direction. And now all of a sudden, 
you know, five knots here turns into 10 knots here. And that's enough in the mountains to push you over the edge and, and cause a major incident. So, you know, it, it's almost sucks when it's like that because it can change, you know, just like that. And that's what happened. So yeah. you go up there and I try a few times and, and the same thing, I'm just right at the limitation of the pedal. And so I told Chris, I'm like, man, I hate to do this to you, but I might have to come down a little bit lower, you know, just maybe another 500 feet or more down this little valley and try to find a, a area where the wind is, is either gone or consistent. And that little bit of altitude will give us a little bit of pedal and I can get you inserted. So I do that. I go down and I insert Chris and he's going to have to hike up to her. And, you know, they don't care. They're just, especially when stuff like that happens, a lot of times they're like, you could put me out anywhere and I'll hike just anywhere. <laughs> put me on the ground. <laughs> so I put him out lower and, uh, and he's going to hike up to her. So, but now the issue is at the altitude I put him out at, like say it's, you know, 10, seven, call it 500 feet lower. Yeah. There's, there's a little bit of extra left pedal that I was comfortable with. And so when you're talking about trying to get everybody out, you know, normally we prefer to do a double up to try to get a victim with the rescuer. And that's ideal in this situation. Cause if, if he can grab her, hike her back down to where I inserted him, and then we can do one double up extraction, get them both out. We're done. And then she doesn't have to ride by herself on the hook. That's ideal. Um, that would have been the best case scenario, but we had a couple of issues now. So the sun was getting low. It was, it was starting to get dark at this point. Um, not quite, but it was, you know, like the high mountains of Mount Charleston, like it's kind of starting to get right on the edge where it's starting to go behind them. So we can see, but it's like, we're, we're running out of daylight. So, and you know, we do night rescues, but we didn't have any goggles with us at the time. Cause we're like, Hey, we got two hours of gas. We, we can do this. You know, if, if we have to go back for gas, we need goggles anyway. So, um, but the issue here in my mind is like, well, shit, I'm doing the math because Chris, it's going to take him, you know, however many minutes to get up to her, hike her back down to that extraction point, get her package ready to go. So I'm doing the math in my head. I'm like, all right, you know, this many minutes have gone by. I've burned this many pounds of fuel and I just about offset what I burned based on what I was going to take on now with her, but it's close and you don't really know. And so the problem I'm struggling with is do I try to do this double up? Because if you think about it here, we say so we come to the hover, the power is good. You know, yeah. we're going to send an empty hook, but we're going to hook up two people and we're going to bring on, call it 400 pounds. You, you don't know, you don't a hundred percent know how much left pedal that's going to take. You can, you can do math. You can look at performance charts, but you know, at the end of the day, the wind is what the wind is going to do. And I wasn't comfortable with that margin because the last thing I want to happen is weight comes on the hook the power comes in and then all of a sudden we hit the stop and we start to rotate. Now, again, that's why we teach, you know, power checks. That's why we, you know, we're ready for the hoist operator to set the load down or worst case, the pilot to just lower and get it on the ground. But that sucks, especially at that altitude when you're up against terrain and you're pulling people out of trees that are hundred feet tall. Right. So right, right. doing the math, I'm like, all right, let's just get her out and then we'll come up, we'll come up and get Chris. And my boss at the time, was down at that lower staging area and he's kind of monitoring all this stuff and not not a pilot um you know like a mid mid-level supervisor basically on on the agency that oversaw air support SAR and maintenance and but for, so, for the record of that he is your boss he's my boss yeah so um, he gives an order yeah 
Yeah. Just want to clarify that one because I know where we're going, but <laughs> paramilitary organization, right? Like, rank, yeah, you know, yeah. matters, right? So, yeah. So I make the decision um, that I told Chris, I'm like, hey, brother, let's do a single extraction. I'm going to get her out. I'm going to fly and haul ass down to the lodge, land, offload her. I'm going to come back up and get you. And looking at the gas that we had remaining and the daylight, the problem now is all of that stuff took so long that doing the math in my head, I would have had enough gas to extract her, fly down, offload her, fly back up, extract Chris, just as now the sun's going down below the mountain. And it's like dusk, but like it's still daylight. We can see the light's not great. Um, but by the time I extracted Chris, I would have went back down there and landed and we would have had just not quite enough fuel to fly back to the hangar and land with our, um, our limit of 300 pounds is what we were required to land with in the Huey. So I'm like, I don't care. I get, I'm going to get everybody out and I'm going to land this thing at the lower lodge and I'm just going to shut it down and we'll ask, you know, one of the, the ground officers to sit with it. We'll have somebody from the hangar run the fuel truck up here. It sucks. It's not ideal, but we get all of our people out. So while I go down there with her, so I, I go up there, I do the hoist, I get her out, you know, with the extra couple hundred pounds of Chris not on the hook, like we're fine. We have enough pedal, not a ton, but we have enough to where I'm comfortable. So I fly down there and when I land, I tell my boss, I'm like, hey, this is the plan. Like I'm going to offload her. I'm going to haul ass up there right now and it's getting dark and I can get Chris back down here. We'll have a cop sit with this thing, get the fuel truck up here. We're good. Everybody's safe. And he's like, negative. Go back to the hangar now, take on fuel and go get goggles and then come back up and get Chris. And so I'm like, that's a really bad idea. And, you know, we're talking over this radio and people can hear us. And so right away, like now, again, keep in mind, I'm a sergeant at this point. I'm a supervisor. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. He's my supervisor. And this was the other, like for me, huge teachable learning moment from this whole situation was you know I'm, I'm trying to be tactful and i'm telling them you know my take on this and again i'm the pilot in command so like whatever decisions i'm going to make is that's on me um but i'm like hey listen i don't want to leave him up there um usually once the sun goes down the winds totally change out here um it could get better it could get worse you know commonly that would happen where the winds would um pick up you, you just never know man like roll the dice and what, that whatever happens happens but that was common like you just never knew it was going to happen up there and he's in a bad spot too so um i just said hey i i really would prefer not to do that i just want to go get him out right now and then he's going to be down and off the mountain and we don't have to go up there on goggles and get him no issue with doing that you know we were, we did mbg hoist all the time but to me you know what's the the risk of leaving him up there coming back, hoisting at night at a high altitude um, just so we could go back and get more gas. You know, why would we do that? It makes no sense. So we kind of went back and forth, but we're over radio that people can hear us, you know, like all the people involved in this situation can hear us. So he basically is like, no, you know, negative. Like I'm, I'm ordering you to go back there, get gas, get goggles, come back and get your guy. Like, okay. And I mean, he's Chris's boss also, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. I get it. I believe you a hundred percent get it right now. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm just like torched at this point. I'm pissed. And uh, so I call Chris on the radio. I'm like, you know, he, he hears what's going on. I'm like, Hey brother, here's, here's what we're at. <laughs> we're going to get back there. We're going to take on fuel. We're going to get goggles. We're going to get back up here as quickly as we can. And he was like, all right, Roger that. 
hey, in order to, to help you out, I'm going to try to start to descend to try to get, you know, further down the mountain to help you out with the altitude situation. Are you good with that? And I said, yeah, actually, I am. Okay, I'm good with that. Yeah, as long as you can, you know, stay in an area where, you know, we'd be able to, to get you, um, that would help. So, yeah, that's fine. That's great as long as it doesn't get too dark and you can see where the hell you're going. Well, just throw that know, out there. Just throw that out there. <laughs> and it's, it's obviously, man, it's easy to see, you know, on goggles, dude, somebody hits you with a flashlight. You can see that for like, you know, a million miles. So, so Dave and I, a million, man, a million, a million you can see for very long distances, right? <laughs> so I haul ass back to the hangar. It's all good. We fuel that thing as quickly as we can. And, you know, we don't even top it off. We just put, you know, probably half the gas. Um, so we knew we could get the job done. So we get our goggles on. Now it's dark. I mean, it is dark, dark. Fly back up to Mount Charleston. And as soon as we start to get in the area, it's it starts getting windy. And I'm like, here we go. And Dave's like, oh, shit, man, it's getting windy. I'm like, yeah, brother, it is getting windy. So we get in that area and I asked LeBlanc as soon as we can get him on the radio, you know, Dave's like, hey, man, where are you at? And he's like, oh, you know, like we can hear him. He's huffing and puffing. And again, it's just funny how all these things kind of line up, you know, because Chris being in phenomenal shape, he's like, I'm going to help my boys. I'm going to get down this mountain. So he starts descending, but he descended a good bit. But now when we found him, he came down probably, I don't know, at least 2000 feet. But he, he came, cause he's, I mean, dude, he is flying down this mountain in the time that it took us. Cause yeah, I mean, it probably took us easily an hour to, to get back on station flying back, getting gas, getting goggles, back in the thing, fired up, back to the mountain. So, you know, the guy's a stud. So he just sends it and he's getting down because he's like, I'm going to help these guys out. I mean, I'm going to get all the way down the mountain. So when we get there, now it's windy as shit and we're getting blasted. And then, you know, he's got, you know, his flashlights and whatever. He's got a headlamp or whatever. But he's one guy and it's like there's snow drifts up there. Like it was not the middle of you know, the summertime. So there's snow up on the mountain. He's off a trail. He's just like Bear grills descending best he can to try to, you know, get to an area where we can hoist him out. And he's motivated. So he ends up coming down into like a chute of a canyon and it starts to tighten up. And when we see his light, you know, we kind of fly up there and we're in that same plane. And, you know, he's probably a couple thousand feet lower, but we start kind of orbiting and, and I'm like, Dude, he's in a tight spot now. Like, and you know, he has no idea. He can't see shit. All he can see is like what's three feet in front of him now. And so now he's in this horrible spot and it's windy. Like it's windy up there now. And so I, I, I try to make some, you know, passes at the mouth of this canyon and we're just getting beat to shit. And we can't get in there. And and that, you know, again, that's what I told my boss. I'm like, one of my concerns is that I come back up here and I can't get him out. Now, what are we going to do? Like, literally, the helicopter will not do it. So, you know, we, we make some passes and we can see him. And I'm like, dude, I can't I can't get in where you're at. That's too tight. And these winds, like if it was calm, I could go in there really slow. But like, we're getting just blasted. I can't I can't commit to flying into this thing. And he's like, all right, you know, Roger that. Like, where can I go? And so Dave's trying to tell him, well, hey, if you can work your way up and out of that thing, onto this you know this part of the ridge like we can get you there and he's like yeah i can't go that way like i'm stuck i can't go this way i can't go that way like i gotta go down now he's committed so looking at that i'm like dude i can't get you anywhere 
if you keep going down that chute, we, we just can't get you out of there. And we even descended, you know, another thousand. We're like, well, maybe in here, like the winds were just shit. So I tell my boss who's still out there and I'm like, Hey, you know, here's the situation. We cannot get him. He's going to, in LeBlanc's like, I'm going to just hike all the way out. Cause there's a road that connects like the, the Kyle Canyon area and the Lee Canyon area. And it basically is a state route highway that connects the two. And he's like, I'm just going to hike all the way down to the highway and somebody pick me up. And so my boss is like, all right, yeah, like I'll, I'll just, you guys, you know, guide me in and tell me where to stop. And we're going to watch his light work its way down the mountain. So that's what we had to do. So he, he eventually oh descended God. all the way down the mountain while we're just kind of watching him. And the whole time I'm thinking, man, he's by himself. There's nobody that's with him. You know, he's got whatever he's got for, you know, like flashlights, whatever. There's snowdrifts up here. He's in horrible terrain. He's off trail. He's descending down the chute of a tight canyon. And we can't do anything. If he falls and snaps an ankle or a leg, like, man, we're we're totally screwed at this point, you know, unless the winds change or, you know, I, all I could do is insert guys as close as I could to him. And then they would have to hike up and get him. So it was not ideal. So long story short, he no, makes it no, all. Don't do that. Don't do that to me, Dave. Don't do that to well, me. He, he, you know, we're watching his little light track all the way down and Dave's trying to guide him, you know, try to give him some advice as to where to go. But again, you know, from our altitude, everything looks great. We're like, oh, just go that way. But as you guys know, when you're on the ground, <laughs> it, it is a thousand times. Like for the pilots, whenever you put guys, especially out in the mountains, you look at something, you'll go, oh, that's not that bad. And then when you when they get boots on the ground, they're like, this sucks. Do not put me here again. <laughs> It's uneven. It's loose. It's rocky. Like there's shale everywhere. But from my point of view, it doesn't look bad. But you know, until you've literally walked a mile in their shoes, you don't know. So we tried to direct him as best we could uh, in a safe path to get to the highway. So he finally makes it all the way down. Hike, and it's like descending train, and then he has to hike up a little bit to get up to where the highway is. So he finally gets there. Boss picks him up, runs him back to the hangar, and at this point, like I'm literally just like fuming i'm so pissed and really at myself like the person that needs to be pissed or you know the, the brunt of it is me and at least you know i i did realize that i'm like i'm an idiot like i should have absolutely put my foot down and, and in hindsight you know said okay i'm gonna go up there and do it anyway write me up demote me kick me out of the unit whatever but i'm not gonna leave him up there because that's not the best decision and then if i can you know i can fight for that after everybody's safe, you know, in the weeks to come when I get it, you know, hit with a complaint from the boss, but, but I didn't. And thankfully he ended up getting picked up, drove back to the hangar. And I told my boss, I'm like, Hey, we need to debrief this, you know, back in the conference room. So we, we all get back there and uh, sit down and, you know, we're all kind of running through the whole situation, you know, starting with running on a left pedal up on the football field, which now seems like ages ago, you know, and <laughs> yeah, LeBlanc, hours, literally hours before. Yeah, I mean, it literally was, you know, and uh, so when LeBlanc started telling us kind of his, you know, version of the story, he's like, hey, you know, yeah, I was working my way down and, you know, I was in like waist high snow at, at times. And, you know, he's not being dramatic about it at all. He's just literally telling it like it was. He's like, yeah, you know, no big deal. But, you know, I, I slipped a couple of times. You know, I slid, you know, a few times, like I fell a few times, you know, I was trying to figure out where I was going. And I'm just like, this was the stupidest thing. We are so much better than this. This was the dumbest thing we could have done. And if he would have gotten hurt up there, it would have been my fault. It would have been a hundred percent my fault. Like I was a rescue pilot. I was a sergeant on that flight. I was the PIC, like all of these things, like as far as leadership goes, I failed Chris 
as a leader on that flight. And it still to this day, like bothers me. I'm just like, God damn it. I wish I could go back in time and make, make a good decision. Right. Cause I made a bad decision and thankfully it was fine. It worked out. He didn't get hurt. Um, and we got him out, but you know, we had a very heated, very heated discussion, which is not, um, for me, that's not in character for me, you know, no yelling and screaming or whatever. But I mean, I, I told my boss exactly what I thought. I'm like, that was, that was a really poor decision. Like it's my fault. It's not yours, but you know, in hindsight, like, you know, it's not being a pilot, not being a star person. Like, you know, he's a manager, but people in those roles really do have to trust the people that are working for them to give them the best information to make good decisions. Right. Yes. Yes. And that, that did not happen, unfortunately. But again, like that's, I still look at like, it's my fault. You know, I should have been more aggressive aggressive probably not a good word but i should have been more you know direct with why and then even just went up there and did it anyway and, and rolled the dice as far as discipline and i feel like even if i would have got hit with a potential you know complaint from my boss um i feel like once a bunch of interviews are done people would have understood like i'm not doing anything you know like horribly negligent like i'm my heart's in the right place trying to get our people out so that they're not hurt i mean keep it in mind like we had lost an officer up there we lost dave van buskirk on that on you know the next mountain over in 2013 like, you know but end of the day saw a debrief and um you know it, it was what it was but i learned so many things on that flight going back to like you know the the left pedal landing issue and um and then going up there and making the decision to do the single instead of the double which I still felt was a good decision because I just was not going to risk, especially with the, with the civilian on the hook running out of left pedal, you know, mid hoist in a hundred feet of trees. Um, but then I learned so much as a leader and as a supervisor, you know, in those situations that, uh, you know, I really did take a lot away from it. And, you know, I just felt terrible for Chris, but, you know, and LeBlanc is just, you know, the guy's an animal. He's like, Oh, whatever, man. Like I could do that again tomorrow. Like no big deal. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't care. I mean, he was, he was trying to do everything he could to try to help, you know, us cross the finish line. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the story. So hopefully somebody listening to this will Dude, take something out of insane. it. Oh my God, bro. You know, what? I don't, I don't ever remember all the details of that. So thank you. Thank you for diving into that one. Um, I, I get a shout out, man. Extreme ownership. You, you, uh, I solid. I get it. Like, yeah. Yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying with, uh, you know, taking taking ownership of it. Like, it should have been my call. I should have done this, and I didn't, and I've been there too. And I'm also on board with people in the management position that might be overseeing it. If you don't know, you don't know. Wait a minute. I, I know that saying. You don't know <laughs> what you don't know. Shut your mouth. Gosh. Let us do our job. We know what we're doing. Most of us. Well, you know, talking about extreme ownership, right? Like I cannot tell you how many uh, times I've read just that book and then the others as well, dichotomy of leadership and, you know, all, all yeah. of this stuff from, from um, you know, echelon front, huge fan. Um, yeah. And, you know, not to that is going to listen to this and I'm certainly not on, on the payroll for those guys, but um, you know, I've, I've attended one of their muster events and I mean, you know, I, I solidly, solidly believe in everything, the core values that those guys teach about leadership and, up to and including that, like, you know, the last thing I would want anybody to think is 
I guess I just horribly threw my boss under the bus describing that situation. But another thing that's important to understand is like, you know, who's responsible for his success as a leader? I am too, right? And uh, so, I mean, I failed him too because I, I clearly didn't give him everything. Maybe, maybe I could have given him a little bit more. Maybe we could have had a little bit more of a conversation or, you know, whatever to give him the tools that he needed to make a better decision um, in my opinion. But that's another big thing to point out too, that it's like, you can't just, you know, throw your leaders under the bus because it is, it's your responsibility to help them succeed. And then by them succeeding, you and the rest of the team are going to succeed. Right. I mean, this is all part of the principles of that, that philosophy, but yeah, that's leading up. So leading up, giving the proper information. So those above you can give you the proper decision to move forward. hundred percent leading up and command. Absolutely. Yeah. Good part of it. Well, especially, you know, in these types of operations where, you know, it's, it sounds kind of cliche, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, people make mistakes, people get hurt and, and killed, you know, so yeah. there's not a lot of room for error. No, there isn't. And that's, that's such a big topic of conversation between all of us. And this is why we go out and, and teach and train is you have these situations where like any, any agency, any story that's ever come on here, you know what, you and I, we're not in the aircraft. We're not on scene. We're not in the aircraft. We are not making that decision. We can Monday morning quarterback it all day long. For all my international friends, that means that like it's a. Uh, uh, how, how do you explain that? Like I could have done it different. Ew, you know. But take a step back, man. You were not in the aircraft. You were not on the ground. It wasn't your decision. The what if? May change it next time. No rescue is the same ever. Yeah, ever. That's a fact. So. Dude, Dave, freaking awesome. <laughs> freaking hike down the damn mountain. Oh, yeah. Coming back. No, hiking all the way down. <laughs> yeah, he just, he probably would have walked home at that point if he had to, you know. That's, that's Chris LeBlanc. But uh, <laughs> thankfully, he didn't get me. Oh, gosh. Dude, that's insane. You know what? I didn't realize you guys got that much snow in Vegas. I mean, I get it up at that high in altitude, wintertime. I know it does snow on there. I remember driving through there and uh, there was snow up in the peaks, but gosh, he's waist deep. He's probably at least two, maybe three feet in the snow. That's a lot. So Yeah, at those altitudes. And, and again, um, just north of where he was in um, the Lee Canyon area, there's a ski and snowboard resort up there, you know, so oh, wow. it's high altitude. Vegas every so often gets a, you know, a dusting of snow that shuts roads down and, you know, it's just not equipped <laughs> for that stuff. But um, you know, Vegas is also a couple thousand feet MSL, you know, um, you're talking about much higher elevations in the mountains and it's not that far from town. So, um, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's an interesting location because it is so high and there is a ton of snow up there in the wintertime. I mean, it's, it's everywhere, you know, it's, it's high, high, high terrain. So, you know, it wasn't, um, wasn't blanketed. It was, it was patchy, but there was, you know, drifts everywhere and, you know, it hadn't all melted and the sections that he was having to go through, obviously, you know, it collects in these, these shoots and areas that he's having to traverse to get down. So, um, yeah, it's, I'm just thankful he's okay. <laughs> and he did, he did look pretty disheveled when he walked into the conference room. You could tell, I mean, he'd been on his ass a few times and, you know, <laughs> he's trying to play it off. Like it wasn't a big deal, but yeah, he, he probably went, uh, you know, ass over tea kettle a couple of times walking down that mountain. So. Yeah, good story. Story. Oh, freaking awesome! I, buddy, I'll take any story you want to tell. That, that's where I'm gonna go with because I, I love, I love your stories. 
<laughs> that's the best one I got right now, man. I feel like I don't know. I'd have okay. to I'd have to ponder on some of the other ones, but uh, again, I'm just I'm I'm a fan of um, you know anything where you can just share sometimes that you something that you did that um, things didn't go right. You know, because that's honestly, that's when we learn, you know, you learn when things go wrong. You don't learn as much when things go right, you know, but uh, yeah, uh, when, when things go sideways, like that's when you actually get something out of it. So I'm all about that. Well, I appreciate you sharing all that. And then uh, even lessons learned that that's good stuff. I mean, right up from a, trying to do a, a landing in at 8,000 feet to, to dropping guys off and, and all the way to that. So, but I like it. Well, it seems to be that time because we've hit our bingo. We'll be relaunching for part two of this episode after we refuel. We'll see you soon. Go. Now, it's time for me to pull chocks and take off. But before I go, I'm always looking for the memorable rescues that people have done. If you have one that you're willing to share or know somebody who has a story, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to highlight it here at The Real Rescue. For everybody that is standing by for that SAR alarm, remember, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. So until next time, fly safe and swim hard. Thank you for joining me today here at The Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. We'd also like to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode. Collins Aerospace Goodrich. Whether your mission is saving lives or servicing high-value assets, Collins Aerospace's Goodrich Toists stay ready to assist. Features such as single-point payout reduce the potential for hoist-induced load swings, enhancing overall safety. So when the sprinklers turn on, I love to just get into the mud. And then what I like to do, go ahead, come here, is I like to run inside and put muddy paws all over the floor. <laughs> oh my gosh, dog, you're freaking filthy. <laughs> and Rhoda, who needs a bath? Who wants a bath? Do you want a bath? No, you don't. <laughs>